Welcome to The Journey, a podcast series by Christ Life Ministries, focused on renewing, restoring, and equipping leaders. Hi. It's good to be with you again. My name is Greg. I'm the director of Christ Life Ministries, and this is The Journey podcast series. Some of you are just discovering this podcast for the first time. This might be the first episode that you've listened to. We just want to welcome you to our living room. That's what we've said from the very beginning. We want this to be a place where we can just relax. We've got nothing on the line whatsoever. No pressure to perform. This might be the only place or one of the few places that that you could say that, that there's no nothing to prove here, nothing to, to lose here, nothing to hide here. That really everything that we would gain is discovering things that we already have in God. Boy, that's encouraging. I'm fired up about where we're going to go today. We're just going to meet with the Almighty. We're just going to let God do what God alone can do. We can't heal our own hearts. Only God can heal our hearts. We're turning to the Isaiah 61. Healer. Today, the one who set his whole purpose in coming to the earth, set captives free, released prisoners from their darkness, and to proclaim the day of the Lord's favor. Now, if you were to turn to Isaiah 61, you would stumble on something real interesting. And that is that as you look at the passage, in fact, I'm going to grab my Bible and we're going to read it right now. This is Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1. It says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. And they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Man, that's been a passage that's buoyed my heart now for decades but it's just been in the last two years that I discovered something very important about this passage it was there to see the whole time (laughs) maybe if I was reading it with my eyes open (laughs) I would have seen it a long time ago But Jesus, this is Jesus' job description for his life and ministry on earth. He came to set broken people free. Now, the encouraging thing, the thing that, that struck me just in this past season is, is really the answer to a question. Who are the oaks of righteousness? The mighty oaks planted for the display of the splendor of God? Well, wouldn't you know, 
with the broken, the outcast, those who believe that they're disinherited, disinherited from the world, not measuring up, downcast, shame-filled, stuck in darkness, locked away and forgotten. It's those men and women whom Jesus, and with his great favor and grace, remember grace is God doing something for us. It's those people who are freed, released, uh, liberated, that become the oaks of righteousness, a planting for the display of the glory of God. Isn't that good news, man? I've always perceived my brokenness as the, the very thing that keeps me from being used by God or the very thing that undermines my ability to perform. But what Jesus is saying through the prophet in this passage is no, 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 no. For those of you who are stuck and riddled with brokenness, like bullet holes blasting through you, all your wrongdoings, all your sin, all all that's happened to you that was out of your control, we need to, in, in our brokenness, turn to a living God, a true Jesus, and ask him for the liberty, the freedom, the transformation that he intended to bring. Do you see it? <laughs> it's the broken and delivered that become the oaks of righteousness, the, the ones that, that shine God's glory most magnificently in this generation. It's those who, oh, by the way, have been forgiven of much, who what? Are able to love much. So again, as we're starting today, don't be discouraged, downcast, blown up by all the horrible things that you've experienced in life. They might be horrible decisions. Or they might be decisions that have been made by people who have just subjected you to horrible things. God has a beautiful way of taking our brokenness and turning it into strength. Not strengthening the independent parts of us, but strengthening our resolve to relinquish control. And allow him to live his beautiful, his amazing, his powerful life through us. So here we are, God. We're bowing low before you. What do we have apart from you? We're dust. And dust will return. We'll return to the dust of the earth someday. And yet you've breathed your life into us. You've called us image bearers. You've woven together works, things, value into (laughs) these clay pots. The most humble exterior filled with the most priceless interior. Thank you, Lord.
Would you allow your hand to rest on this time? There's nowhere we can go. We are not with us. And so we're asking that you would allow your hand to rest on this time, that you'd bless it, that you would put the key into the lock and and allow us to hear those tumblers falling into place and, and that lock being opened. That our chains would fall off, Lord, during this session. And that we'd be set free, and we trust you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good. Uh, we're in episode nine of the, the Journey podcast series. And as always... We're going to do a little bit of recap here so that we have got a good feel for where we've just been so that the new experience that we're unleashing today doesn't seem disconnected from the whole journey. So last week, remember, we, we dove into what it takes to step out of some simple steps that will help us leave chaos and enter into the presence of the true Jesus. Do you remember what they are? Number one, uh, based on Matthew eleven twenty eight, we're to actually come to God. There are so many things that we come to. Often Jesus is last in line. <laughs> if we would just simply stop and come to him, we would find the help that we desperately need moment by moment throughout the day. Number two is that we have to admit that the reason why we're weary and heavy laden in life is because we've attempted to navigate it independently from God. Now, that's that's often not a thing that we choose to do. It's just what we have done for so long that we don't know that there's a life that could be lived differently. And Jesus, in many different ways, would have us wake up to the fact that it doesn't need to be this way, that we can turn to him, cast off our heavy yoke, and experience life the way that he's designed it to be lived. Number three is, is based off of both Matthew eleven twenty eight, but also John five nineteen that that the secret to Jesus' yoke, the light yoke that he offers us, which is also the yoke that he carries himself, is inability that John 5:19 says that Jesus chose to do nothing on his own that that his way for providing ransom the ransom to all mankind was to engage in branch life where he recognized that everything that was necessary for life for godliness for for the accomplishment of the Father's will on earth would come from the Father, and Jesus' responsibility was just to surrender himself to the will, the way of his Father. And that's what Jesus did and what Jesus is inviting us to grow in. He models it. He says, here, here it is, and then he places his spirit inside of us, and he invites us to walk in his ways. Oh my goodness. Thank you. He promises every bit of provision necessary to walk in his ways. Remember, 
We've hit it a couple times. That's Philippians 2. That is God in us who causes us to will, to desire him, and then to act according to his good purposes. It's all waiting for you and me. If we would turn our backs from the independent, world-centered way that we've done the Christian life. (laughs) That sounds crazy to say, but it's true. And turn to him. Finally, uh, step four is and five is all about what we're turning to. Do you remember the, the, the word pictures that, that were woven together for us out of John 15? That we're called to branch life, that we're called to the abiding life, that, that the abiding life isn't just having a 15-minute devotional time in the morning, but it's, but it's designed God's designed life to be more of a Galatians 2.20 life where where the more I grow, the more I become less, the, the more I agree with Romans 6 that, that I've died. As Christ died, I die with him. Now I must reckon myself dead to the independent life, the, the first Adam way of, of doing life and allow his spirit now to become my life. Christ is in me, the hope of glory. Ho! <laughs> Come on, man. That's what we need. We need him. The other word picture that we wove together was out of Luke eleven thirty four. It gives us a better picture of what abiding life is all about. It's the passage that says that, that the eye is the lamp of the body. And if our eye is simple and singularly focused, we'd have light flood our lives. But if our, our gaze is fixed on our chaos, well, guess what? Our lives are going to be full of darkness. So again, what we're getting at is it, we need to have a proper perspective of where God's bringing us as we're leaving chaos or else we're going to walk right past it. We're going to just think that somehow God wants to bring us the tools to be able to perform in our chaos more effectively. That's not what God's desire is. He doesn't heal us so that we can perform more effectively. He heals us so that we're set free from every need to perform. We ended last week with this Hebrews 4 invitation to come before the throne of I will do it for you, the throne of grace. God doesn't want to strengthen us so that we can somehow navigate successfully through all the hardships of life. He wants us to actually learn how to safely relinquish control, to hide in him, to find his protection, his covering, to come into his home, to live there. You know, that's that Old Testament reality that once you, as a guest, were, you crossed the threshold of someone's home, it was now their responsibility to provide for all your needs. That's what God wants us to begin doing, to, to, to understand, to admit to him how unable we are, and to trust him, to look to him, to provide everything. That's what David said, right? Uh, uh, where does my help come from? My help comes from you, Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So that's where we were last week. We, we, again, ended with the practice, the prayer practice of laying down. We're going to start this week with the practice of lifting up. If you haven't gone out and bought the book, The Cure, 
Go out and get it. It's an amazing book. Simple read. You, you could read it in an afternoon, and yet it's just chock full of biblical truth that's powerfully presented. It's presented in narrative form. At least parts of the book are in narrative, and, and uh, it's well worth your time. On page 20 of that book, uh, we have this quote, which I think would be really helpful to us as we're beginning to understand the nature of coming to God and lifting up our waywardness to him in prayer. Because really our waywardness and sin is the focal point for this second part of the prayer exercise that we're unpacking today. Again, this is page 20 of The Cure. Real simple statement, but worth meditating on. That confessing our sin should be perceived like this, that we're standing with God, our sin in front of us, working on it together with him. That we often, regarding sin, perceive it as this giant obstacle, this big pileup with Jesus on one side, us on the other, and that our job is to get the shovel, clear the debris, the mess, the waywardness out of the way so that we can see Jesus and rightfully, in a, in a right way, connect with him again. Of course, the scripture is very clear, and we've camped out on it quite a bit in these past eight episodes, that we can't do anything on our own. And so obviously that's a, a picture that's an incorrect picture of, of our waywardness, that God wants us to understand that, that he's with us in it all, that, that when he saved us, he saw all of our brokenness and waywardness long before we ever took our first breath. And nonetheless, he extended his kindness and an opportunity to become his child. So we have no brokenness, no waywardness or sin that is so big that God would throw up his hands in frustration and say, I'm done. That even the opportunity to come to him in confession, which is where we're going to go, is graced. It's a provenient working of God, a manifestation of his provenience in our life that, that we would even see it see our sin, and be willing to turn from it. That's God at work in us. We need to perceive our sin in that way. I mentioned confession. One of the words in the Greek that's used for confession in the New Testament is homologeo. And homologeo is an amazing word, and quite frankly, that word has changed the way that I perceive repenting. Again, it's a word that's used for confession in the New Testament, and it simply means the same to speak. That, that we would consider God's perspective of our waywardness and admit that he's right. Now, the beautiful thing with this is that, that homologeo is, is the opportunity to look at our sin free from our own lenses that we would consider God's perspective of our sin, 
that we would take up his perspective and speak it back to him, saying that he's right. And of course, that perspective is that, that no ungodliness should live in us. But it's also a perspective that's filled with kindness that leads us to repentance. It's full of understanding, not understanding the, the, the wicked or the broken act that we just committed, but understanding all the, dis- the disruptive emotion, distortions, and unprocessed wounds that precipitated our acting out. That if we were to hear Jesus speak to our areas of sin, we would hear an understanding God, a God who would say, Oh, your brokenness has created this pattern in you, and I'm here to set you free. I'm the Isaiah 61 God who's here to break you out of your prison cell and to bring you into the light. And so we then, with with confidence, knowing again that God is with us in our sin, we can confidently and with peace and a freedom from anxiousness be recklessly honest with him, ridiculously uh, honest about our areas of brokenness. And as this, this lifting up begins to be a part of a regular rhythm of life, it will, be, it will begin to, to work its way into awareness of every area of waywardness as it presents itself throughout the day. That the moment that we do something well and we hear or feel the pride that we have often buoyed ourselves with as a result of our performance, we can right away lift that up to God and say, do you see that, Jesus? I'll never be any different without you changing me. That the moment that I accomplish your will, pride is right there. And then you can practice homologeo. I know, Lord, your perspective of pride is, is found right in Romans 8, that no man who lives according to the flesh or the independent life lives in worldliness can please you. And so I just lay this before you. I offer it to you. I ask that you would forgive me wash me and draw me closer and closer and closer to you. Psalm 139 is a great passage to use in practicing homologeo. Starting in verse 23, it says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, I was always blown away by how David seemed to talk to God even about his wretchedness as a friend. There was relationship there. There was a sense that, that God wouldn't turn his back on him, and, and David leaned on that even in confessing sin. That's, that's how God would have us approach him not believing that our, our good standing or our stability in God is dependent on how well we perform the Christian life. Now, don't get me wrong. There are things that God has hardwired us to be about. And the power, the resources to accomplish those things 
are available to us. But regarding our sin, regarding our lives, he wants us to understand that he's the safest place that we could turn, that we'll always find him like the father of the prodigal son running out with with arms outstretched to bring us home, healing what needs to be healed, transforming what needs to be transformed, and making all things right as a result of being back in abiding relationship, back in, in the place of making Christ our home. That's the way that he's designed life to be lived, and that's the practice of, of lifting up, that we take our waywardness, knowing that we are already accepted and we're blatantly honest about what we're suffering with. And then we, we ask God to give us his perspective of our sin, and then we just speak back to him what he speaks to us, and we just release it to him. Maybe we bring it to, maybe we practice lifting up with laying down, that the moment that we're aware of what malady, what, what brokenness, what malignancy is, is in our hearts, that we would come before that Hebrews 4 throne of, I will do it for you, and confess it, ask God to clean our hearts, to, to, to sanctify us, and we would leave that sin before his throne knowing that this kind of interaction is pleasing to him. Okay, I think you get it. Why don't we move on? Some of the leaders that you'll work with, or even maybe getting into some of what you might be experiencing right now, uh, needs to be talked through. As I'm working with a leader and helping them uh, begin to experience renewal and restoration, we transition from the practice, the simple practice of laying down and lifting up, into four reasons why we often don't choose to turn to God. Here's the first one. We choose to not turn to God sometimes because our history paints an unfavorable picture of Jesus. Do you remember our conversations about lenses? We can't forget the fact that lenses are, are things that we wear all the time. Kind of like my son Elias, you know, when he lays down to go to bed at night, he takes his glasses off and puts them on his bedside table. And when he wakes up the next morning, he puts them back on again. Lenses are things that we don't take off and put back on. They're things that God will need to come in and bring dynamic healing to, or else we're stuck. And if we have damaged uh, history, if we have unprocessed wounds related to what mom brought to dad, what dad brought to mom, what they brought to us, or what an uncle brought to us uh, and nobody else knew in the family or, or deep regret and damage, if that hasn't been processed through, we'll have distortions that have created lenses that will equally be applied to those people and those damaging events that happened sometimes dozens or decades ago, 20, 30, 40 years ago as much as they apply to similar events today. It's a very common experience for the leaders that I work with, and it's been my experience that the damage that, I, that we experienced in our childhood 
again, is carried right into the here and now. And that damage includes a damaged perspective of who Jesus is. I'll never forget working with a leader. Well, this would have been about six years ago. And he said, Greg, I just, as I, as I turn my heart to Jesus, I just imagine myself on this running track. You know those running tracks that, that they put up around like a high school football field? And there's Jesus with a stopwatch. <laughs> it's easy to laugh about this now because this guy has got set free. But it was terrible in the moment. He had tears in his eyes. He was all stressed out, almost hyperventilating. He said, I'm running as fast as I can, and every time I get past or I run past Jesus, he hits the stopwatch, and he just says, just a little faster. You'll be okay as long as you go a little faster. Oh, you were a little bit slower on that lap. Faster, faster, faster. It was all performance, a performance-based religion performance-based stability. He had to perform Christ-likeness in order to be accepted by Jesus. And let me tell you, my friends, that is not a biblical, that's not a biblical picture of what it means to live with Jesus, know him and walk with him, or, or to engage the sanctification process. Do you see? His lenses, his brokenness, his unprocessed wounds from his childhood were playing themselves out in his everyday life with Christ. He needed healing. And when Jesus helped him process his unprocessed wounds, my goodness, man, he was set free. He was able to walk off the track and allow Jesus to go to work through him. So the first reason we would choose to not turn to God is that our history paints an unfavorable picture of Jesus. The second reason is that we don't think Jesus is the immediate solution to our problems. <laughs> if I had, literally, if I had a $5 bill for every time I've had a, a leader come in and just say, Greg, I know all this stuff about walking with Jesus, and, but really what I don't need is another devotion right now. I need to find a worship leader or I need to pay off my building debt or I need to close the back door, man. We're bleeding like crazy. We got to get people in the pews or in the seats on Sunday (laughs) that they get so focused or fixated on, on what needs to be fixed or, or the next big goal to be accomplished that they get their eyes on their chaos and off of the true Jesus. Not that God wants us to somehow go back into a back room, hole up and just, meditate on him he would have our eyes again luke eleven thirty four, fixed on him and he would he would want us to work hard but we're not working hard in order to prove we're valuable we're working hard because we already are valuable we're working on these things in in their proper priority that we're abiding first and then within that abiding relationship then we can, as we continue to keep our gaze on the true Jesus, work on these things in the right way. Here's the third reason why we often don't choose to turn to God. That we believe that we just don't have the time or the energy for more work. (laughs) That, 
that, my friends, is called a subtractional way of going about life with Jesus, that we think that every hour that we would devote to stepping away from the rigors or the chaos of life and fixing our gaze on Jesus is one hour that's stolen away from our ability to accomplish the problems that need or solve the problems that need to be solved. Boy, oh boy, right away, face value, we can see that there's a major problem with that. That Martin Luther, back in the day, said, I have far too much to do to not spend my first three hours in prayer. He was so aware of his own weakness and his own ability, inability, his own need, that he needed to bow down before the throne, get his eyes, his heart, his emotions disconnected from chaos onto Jesus so that he could begin to wade into the massive correspondence that was his responsibility and all the Reformation leadership God had gifted him to do, to be a part of, to be used in. So let me hit these three points again. My history paints an unfavorable picture of Jesus. That might be one reason why we wouldn't choose to turn to God. The second is I don't think that Jesus is the immediate solution to my problems. Number three, I have no time or energy for more work. And finally, the last, the last reason is that I'm tired of needing to perform in life and especially for God. I often will have people talk about being religious when we talk about setting aside time to be with Jesus, that that somehow their acceptance by God isn't dependent on their performance for God. And of course, that's true. And that's the very heart of what we've been trying to communicate through nine episodes here. But at the same time, there's a place to meet with God, drink deeply of him, and be transformed. It's kind of like that old adage, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't force him to drink. That, that we often are starved and spiritually emaciated, and yet, from God's perspective, we're seated at a table that has abundant provision. We just need to turn to God and and consume, eat, take in what he's provided. So again, if you're feeling like you're in performance mode, well, maybe it's because you're, you're trying to use Jesus as a means to your own end, that you're in living the independent life in a quiet time is just a way to accomplish as a means to your own end. You're using your quiet time as a means to your own end. And quite frankly, I don't even like the phrase quiet time. If we're meeting with the Almighty, it probably should be far from quiet. (laughs) I mean, if we're standing before the very throne of God and God is unveiling himself to us, we're able to see him uh, in a biblically accurate way, it probably at times would cause us to shout at the top of our lungs, Glory! holy. When you look in the book of Revelation, that's certainly what we see, isn't it? A great cloud, a great great mass of humanity standing before the throne, shouting and worshiping, and there's a big uproar. There's a big celebration of God. That, That might, I would imagine that that probably should make its way into our life with God. 
So again, those are four reasons why leaders, some of the leaders that you might work with, or, or maybe this applies to you. I mean, it maybe is probably the wrong word. It does apply to all of us at one level or another. I think it's important to uncover, to, to, to put words to why we don't come to Jesus so that we remove that as an obstacle. Here's where we need to land this week. And really, this leg of the journey, we're completing leg two of the journey, the true Jesus work, with a quote from Dallas Willard. This is all about the cost of non-discipleship. He says this, To depart from righteousness is to choose a life of crushing burdens, failures, and disappointments, a life caught in the toils of endless problems that are never resolved. Here is the source of the unending soap opera, that sometimes horror show known as the normal human life. The cost of discipleship, get this, the cost of discipleship, though it may take up all we have, is small when compared to the lot of those who don't accept Christ's invitation to be a part of his company in the way of life. Do you get what Dallas Willard is suggesting? That if we, as quote-unquote Christians, choose to try to accomplish the Christian life apart from God, just doing it our own way, living the independent life, he's suggesting that the indep- our independent attempts at Christianity will be far more taxing, a far more difficult path than, than the, the road of true discipleship. Though discipleship costs us everything. True discipleship will be the easier path when compared to trying to do it on our own with endless disappointments, with an ever-growing sense of stress and tension as we're left with nothing other than living in our chaos, trying to find Jesus in the chaos that, that, that Jesus is inviting us, even now he's inviting us, to a place of recognizing chaos for what it is, understanding that life lived independently from God is a ripoff. And worse than a ripoff, it's just impossible. That I'm choosing the, the, the more difficult path in choosing independence. That God would have us right now, even as we're we're seeking him, even as we're, we're listening and desiring and learning to, to go deeper in him. He would have us choose the path of discipleship, though it cost us everything that we have. And God, we're asking now that you would just come, that you would draw near, that you would, that you would help us, that, that it's your spirit that enables us to, to live in true discipleship. It's your spirit and your own enabling that enables us to to see our chaos for what it is and then choose to come to you, admit our, our weariness, to admit our inability, and then to fully engage John 15 abiding relationship. Heal us and we'll be healed. And we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next week.